Britannica is thrilled to introduce Launchpad's GCSE, winner of the BET Award 2021 for Best Classroom Aid for Learning, Teaching and Assessment. We know that you have a lot on your plates and planning lessons takes a huge amount of time. Launch Packs will help you with vetted articles, primary sources, videos, images, learning journeys, and ready-to-use student tools and activities. Let us prove this to you by giving you a free trial access. Plus, all GA teachers get 10% off. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy this next GeogPod with John. Hello there and welcome to another JogPod. It's something of a treat today again because I'm joined by Ben Hennig, who's Professor of Geography at the School of Engineering and Natural Sciences at the University of Iceland. Thanks ever so much for joining us today, Ben. Thank you for having me and greetings from Iceland. <laughs> yes, it's. Uh, you're saying that you're enjoying a heat wave at 13 degrees at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's been a miserable summer in Reykjavik, which I think partly is because of the volcano and the particles in the air that sort of kept it quite cloudy up here. So the rest of the country was fine, but Reykjavik was constantly in this sort of mist and fog. And yeah, it wasn't nice. So we had a nice day today. Oh, good. Until well, now. It's sort of getting a bit more overcast now. Well, it's, it's threatening rain here as well now. I think by the time the podcast's gone out, people will have forgotten that we had a week of scorching weather here in the UK. Um, and we'll be back to a normal summer. Um, you have now flitted about a bit. I first came across your work when uh, when you were at Sheffield University and I'd moved to the Geographical Association after teaching for a number of years in a school in Rotherham. And you were part of that social and spatial inequalities research group, which um, I thought the work was just amazing because it was the first time I think really that I'd seen anything like that and I did some work with a colleague of yours called uh, Dan Vickers and we were well I say we I use the term loosely he <laughs> was mm. was mapping inequalities in a way that I'd never really seen before it was my first stab at using uh, GIS tools and I wanted to show a school audience the disparities in Sheffield. And then that got me to exploring the, the rest of the work that you did. It was absolutely amazing. How did you start and, and what were you doing with the, with the project? Yeah, it's an in interesting story, actually. I, before I moved to Sheffield, so when I applied for my PhD studentship with um, Danny Dorling's research group, where Dan Vickers and, and others were also involved, I, I probably couldn't even pinpoint Sheffield down on a map of the UK. I, I sort of roughly knew where it was and, you know, everything about Sheffield Steel. But like when I applied for it, I first had to look it up and I took my first flight to Manchester. Sort of I started realizing like this is a really beautiful um, area of, of the UK that I never really appreciated before. And um, so I only got sort of more familiar with the work that Danny and, and his colleagues and Dan are doing after I really started my PhD project. So I hadn't really been involved in, in working about or looking into inequalities at, at the same sort of scale and level that um, they've been doing at Sheffield. So I really that really got me into um, working along similar lines and I think influenced quite a lot of the work that I keep doing until, um, until today and that also defines my research today. So the first bits and pieces of work, so I moved to Sheffield in 2008, and I think it was about the same time when they, or just shortly after they released the report on um, Sheffield 
a sort of tale of two cities, I think it was labeled, um, yes. commissioned. Um, so it was a commission report and that sort of slowly got me into understanding like what it really means to talk about inequalities in society in Britain, which is a quite persistent theme over the past couple of decades, which coming from Germany or having grown up at least in Germany most of my, my life so far um, or at that time, I didn't really appreciate because there was not a similar debate going on the same way in Germany because, for example, like deindustrialization in the 80s and so on went into a completely different direction than it went in Sheffield. So the, the Rhine-Ruhr region where I'm from, you could easily compare it to the North Finland, like Manchester, Sheffield and so on. But the transformation into a deindustrialized region went completely differently than it went in the UK in the 80s, where there was, was a much smoother transition from like the coal mining industries and so on towards, let's say, a more knowledge-oriented economy and also the approach of looking at the region as a whole instead of letting individual cities um, cope with the effects um, of, of the industrialization was completely different. And that started making me really realize how different, even in very similar European countries, these processes work and what kind of impact they have on people. And at the same time, so I, I started getting into the research that, um, that the, the group was working on, but at the same time, I also started realizing how this really impacts and affects the people who live in a region. I've really come to, to love the people of Sheffield and the region and, and Yorkshire. And I started to understand that this sort of, let me call it the common experience of suffering in the 80s, um, the economic suffering really made them a very or turned them into a very lovely breed of people who are very friendly towards each other, but also very friendly towards, let's say, foreigners like myself. So very welcoming if you let yourself fall into it, if you, if you start to become part of the community. And I think that has a lot to do with the processes that have been happening at the time and the kind of transformation that these places were going through, which probably is different to what has been happening um, in, in similar regions in Germany. And um, that made me interested in, in understanding more like how do these developments and differences in approaches towards, um, yeah, towards economic change really affect people's livelihoods. And a lot about that has to do with understanding what has been happening behind the scenes. So what, what do the numbers tell us about the changing livelihoods and the changing li living conditions of people? And that's the essence of what we are looking at when we try to understand patterns of inequality. And the other thing, um, maybe on a, on a final note on, on that opening question, um, I also started to, un not to understand, but to appreciate more like that um, inequalities is something that um, happens at all different scales and levels. If you look at global inequality, for example, so the PhD project that I was working on, which is linked to World Mapper, which we're certainly going to talk about later, um, looks at mostly at the global scale. And if you look at poverty and inequality at a global scale, we'd say like um, Western Europe, for example, is a very wealthy country. There's at least at a global scale, no poverty. But then when you zoom into Europe, you start seeing like there's poor and rich countries in Europe that are very um, yeah, very different from each other. And then if you zoom into the different regions of Europe, you start actually realizing that levels of poverty 
let's say, in parts of London are very similar to levels of poverty, for example, in the Mediterranean region and so on. So you actually start to see that it's a lot more complex than just black and white saying somebody's poor and rich, but it depends a lot on the spatial context that you're living in. And that's where we need geography to understand these patterns and to understand how it affects, um, in the end, how eventually it affects the people and people's livelihoods, as I was saying before. One of the things that, um, I know Danny talks about this, but but I got really from Dan because I was working closely with him, was, was as you say, putting the people behind, that, that, that are behind those statistics and foregrounding them so that we looked at the people that we were that these statistics represented and talked about them rather than looking at just choropleth maps. But what's it, what's the lived experience like for these people? And that the bus journey, which a lot of geographers will know about now, but the, um, the, the 83 bus that went across Sheffield. And if you got off and, uh, and looked at the, the life expectancy of people from the start to the finish, um, the people at the end of your journey their life expectancy was 10 years less. And it, it, they're really powerful messages when you start to talk about the people behind the statistics. I think that's the beauty of geography. If you're a proper geographer, you try to find narratives and stories in these numbers. And I think a lot of the work that I'm doing tries to sort of identify like what's the narrative behind numbers. We've probably certainly become prone to... Um, like seeing a lot of statistics and trying to make sense of these statistics. And if, if you look at what politicians are saying about statistics, everybody finds their own truth because whatever you want to say about a statistic, you just need to treat it rightly in order to bring your message across. So um, it's the actual narratives behind these statistics that make, um, that make it much more vivid and much more um, understanding if, if you try to see like what's what's the impact on people's lives and livelihoods and narratives like um, the bus journey or, or Danny did something similar for London which I, I was working on on some mapping about it like a tube journey like what is the difference in in um, life expectancy for example between different tube stations that sort of makes it much more much more open and accessible um, than just to look at at a row of numbers or a row of bar charts or these kind of um, more abstract statistical depictions. And I think part of what geographers should be doing at least is to, to sort of um, get these narratives out of um, the research that we are conducting or when it comes to school teachers, for example, also trying to find narratives around the themes um, that we're teaching in the curriculum, for example. It brings it alive for students then, doesn't it? Because young people sometimes are not so bothered about the, the figures. But when you talk about real people, uh, it begins to have a much more powerful impact, I think. I think you need both to a certain degree. I mean, what the media has been doing, uh, the press printed or TV and so on, in, in probably the past decade or so, it tries to get more and more into these personal stories. Um, when it comes to disasters or negative as well as positive stories, it tries to sort of look at individual um, stories, how people are affected by the different themes and by the different things that are going on around the planet. But of course, you also need, on the other hand, you need to get this sort of broader overview, like you need a, a good map, for example, in order to understand um, how the bigger picture is. Mm -hmm. So. It's not either or, it's, it's not black and white of what, what you should be looking at. And um, a lot about 
appealing to people also depends on how well, for example, the, the visualizations, for example, are made, with, which I think is part of, of what I'm trying to achieve with my work as well. So you need the, you need to see the individual, but you also need to see the bigger picture. And you, you should, in the best case, geography can create narratives that combines the two things together. I, and as you say, that is, that's the beauty of geography. Some of the geography I did, actually, I'm going to go on a little bit of a grump, really. But when I went to university, we spent a lot of time looking at patterns using Cristala and Lersch and Weber. And people were removed entirely from those patterns. This is how people would organise themselves if they were on a homogeneous plane. And I think... For me, anyway, that geography was so impersonal that I didn't really enjoy it. And I fell into doing more physical geography where I felt it was it grabbed me more. And then, then when I found this sort of work later, it, it brought me back to the power of, of human geography. I know I perhaps shouldn't sit with human and physical. That's a that's a, a bit of a wicked split. But. As long as you allow me to go with it for now, and, and it brought me back to to human geography. Wow, this is exciting again! But I hadn't enjoyed Cristal and Lersch greatly. It's um, it's tricky. Like where I went to school in Germany, all these things really weren't a big part of the curriculum back in the sort of eighties, early nineties, and so on. So the first time I really learned about all these models and the more conceptual side of, of human geography um, was really at university. And of course, it sort of at first it's boring or you feel like it's boring. But I was giving a, um, a lecture at a summer school the other day talking about um, geographic perspectives and uh, in relation to urban issues and urban dynamics. And I actually threw in a bit of Cristela, for example, in Burgess and Hoyt and so on, uh, all these sort of modeling and, and sort of structurizing and systemizing um, urban spaces. And it brought me back to the question of like, why, why do we have these models and why are they still part of our textbooks, for example? But then you start realizing they're actually quite useful concepts to work with, for example, when you go into urban planning. They are ideal cases of um, how maybe an urban landscape or a structuring of towns and cities and villages should be looking like, and you would never create something like this in reality. I mean, the, it was tried in Germany in the 1930s and there, it has a big political connotation. Like Cristela is not, <laughs> not necessarily only a positive figure in, in German history, at least in, in sort of German geography, he's also seen quite critical because it was used for the expansion of um, Germany at the time in, um, in the war times when um, Germany tried to expand its territories and it was, seen as a template for planning. But the actual theory or the theoretical and systematic thinking that he was putting behind it makes sense to a certain degree that um, not every small town needs a university, for example, or like this kind of, like, what do you need for your everyday life? What do you leave, need for your midterm and long-term needs? And how do you structure um, the space in, in this regard? And this is important for politicians, for planners and and so on to think about. So you need to know about these models. Also, when you try to understand how cities developed and evolved over time, you need to structure it and to model it. And I think the the tricky thing to, to bring that into a much more, um, or to, to communicate that in a much more vivid way is to move away from just the theoretical thinking behind it and sort of combining it with some kind of real world geography. So to make, to, to add an experience to it 
to try to see like how does this look in reality I think quite often we, at least in the past, and when I went to university, we still, we, we first learned about all the models and um, all the theories behind it. And then we started looking at it in, in the real world and in the real landscapes. But maybe we need to bring this closer together. And that's something also for, for school, but also university geography education to consider. And I think it has been changing in recent years as well, that we sort of integrate these these different layers of learning more with each other but we can't like we have to learn theories we have to learn models and that applies to human geography as well as physical geography and maybe it's more tangible in physical geography because if we stand in front of a volcano or a glacier or something else we can sort of relate to it much much faster but if we stand in a city and suddenly um, talk about central places theory it's a lot more abstract because you don't see it erupting in front of your eyes or, you know, sliding downhill and these kind of things. So that probably makes it more um, difficult for human geography to find the right approaches into um, into transferring that knowledge into into people's brains and heads and making it it exciting. But we still need all this. It gives you a nice yeah, framework, no. doesn't it, for interrogation? That's the thing. I think um, as long as there are there are some textbooks that sort of give you the the diagrams and suggest that's how it is and then when you try it in the real world of course it isn't and that's it never it. is it's those <laughs> questions isn't it why yeah. is it not like this what's going on that then geography begins to take on an interest and an excitement rather than here it is this is what it looks like and that's probably the the, the problem as i was saying before it's a problem with human geography a bit more than it is with physical geography because physical geography much more often is like in the textbook. At least the difference between the textbook example and what you see in front of your eyes is smaller than the, the more abstract ideas and, and thinking behind um, many of the structures that we look at in, in human geography. Like if you look at, I don't know, shapes of villages and types of villages and so on, they are never like the model that, <laughs> that was suggested. And also they have transformed so much over over the decades because they are not like in medieval times anymore when they were, they were founded uh, in order to, I don't know, get access to the forest. So these kind of things that this has all changed. And we, in human geography, we probably have to fight a bit harder <laughs> or we have to try harder. Although having said that, I, I, I do remember when I first started teaching, when I first started teaching A-level, there was, a, there was a, what I thought was a fabulous question about a glacial question with a photograph and my students came out and I said, have you done that question we prepared for you? Look, you should have got 25 out of 25 for that one. And they said, what do you mean? Uh, that, that one with the photograph of an arete. Oh, is that what it was? Oh God, no, we didn't do it. <laughs> oh no, because I hadn't realized at the time that actually they need to see more than just the textbook photographs. This was a real learning curve for me as a, as a young A-level teacher. They, they didn't recognize that feature because it wasn't the same as the one in the textbook. So even physical geography, things that are different, <laughs> they were not, oh dear. Anyway, so after that, I made sure that they had lots of different photographs from slightly different angles of different features. So they could then begin to recognize what they were. We used to have a, um, that was at university, we used to have a course or a whole module on geographic image interpretation. So it was a, it was a course taught in the classroom and the entire session consisted of looking at pictures, 
mainly physical geography, but not necessarily only, looking at pictures or satellite uh, photographs and so on, and then discussing the features that you're seeing, um, like the geographic features and the structures that you're seeing in them to sort of develop an eye for um, or appreciating how different the sort of um, reality looks from the model and how, for example, also in physical geography, um, features are blending each other and transforming each other and, and influencing each other. I think that's that's a really interesting thing, maybe also to consider in teaching, that we need to work a lot more with examples from the real world to make students appreciate more the, the wide range of um, expressions that particular themes and particular topics have. I, I like, for example, doing that, I mean, especially when I was um, teaching human geography in back in Germany, still at university, um, I used to let students work a lot with satellite images and aerial photographs about urban structures and how they developed over time and then transferring that in field trips, like orienting themselves, for example, in, in aerial photographs and seeing like, what does it look from above and what does it look like when we are on the ground and these kind of things that you can start sort of to imagine what it looks like. And then also adding um, maps into the mix that you you start to see like that all these different types of, of visualization and of geographic um, imagery all relates to the same real world features, but that you can you become a bit more imaginative when you sort of work with this, these different types of media and that you then also start to actually see the same patterns and the same structures when you then move on to another place and start seeing like, oh yeah, it's actually, this is very similar to what we've seen, I don't know, last week when we went to that place or when we looked at this map or this aerial photograph. I think we, we need to work with a lot more um, different types of material and media to, to bring that diversity um, to the students. I liked what you said earlier as well about the question is, what can you see rather than here is what we're looking at. Let's unpick yes. it and explain it. What can you see? Because they don't see the same patterns necessarily as we do. As a, as a geographer who's been a geographer for some while, you'll see something and think, oh, that's pretty obvious. And, and young people coming to it first time won't have a clue what sort of pattern you've just picked out because you're a geographer. And the thing is also, especially how you phrase it is the right question to actually phrase it. When you stand somewhere in the field, you the first question on field trips I quite often like to ask is like, what do you see here? And then some students might feel overwhelmed and thinking like, well, there's a lot going on here. What do I say? But then you start to get into a conversation. And once students start understanding, I'm not asking about the right answer, but I want to understand what they are seeing and also want to guide them and teach them into how maybe um, how to structure their sort of vision, their geographic vision in, in a much more open and, and um, creative way. And the question of what do you see here, whether it's in the classroom in a picture or in a map or whether it's out in the field is probably always the best question to, to start a, a <laughs> session or a lesson in geography just very broadly to see like different people have different perspectives and maybe also different focus. And sometimes students surprise me, they might see th things that I don't see. So you can learn from your students as well. Now, when I came to Sheffield, I never moved. I, I moved down here and I thought, oh, I'm moving, I'm moving south. That shows how my geography was at the time. 
And I thought I was moving to the, <laughs> to the south of, well, not quite the south of England, but I certainly didn't think I was still going to be in the north. I shouldn't let any of my friends in Sheffield know that. But you didn't <laughs> stop in Sheffield, did you? You moved on. So you went um, from there, um, you went to the University of Oxford um, and you continue to study and investigate social and spatial inequalities. Is that where you were involved with the work with, um, with Danny in London? Yeah. It's actually, so I, I started working with Danny in Sheffield. He was my PhD, my first PhD supervisor. And um, when Danny moved on to Oxford, I sort of had to make a choice. Do I stay in Sheffield or move on with him? And it was, for me, it was really more like a relocation, but carrying on working on the same, same things that we've been working on before. And the project about inequalities in London, that actually, that was my first postdoc project it started in Sheffield and then we took it with us to Oxford and kept working on it um, when I was when I was in Oxford and I guess it's it's probably a typical thing of what happens in academia you just carry on moving around I actually quite liked living in Sheffield I could always see myself um, moving back there if the opportunity arises but it's just um, in, in most cases if you if you're kind of stuck in academia or if you don't find your way out of academia, then very often you just have to move on in order to progress in, in your career. So that's, that's how the move from, from Sheffield to Oxford came about and also how my previous move from the University of Cologne to, to Sheffield came about as well. And then you've moved on again. Finally, your story so far, but there'll be lots more chapters because I'm, I'm sure you'll, you'll move again. But your professor of geography at the University of Iceland, which must be a fascinating post. I mean, a fascinating place. I've never been. My son's been twice. Ridiculous. Two geography field trips because he he was at he was at one school for his GCSEs and then moved to another to do his A levels. Guess uh, guess where the field trip is again, Dad? Oh <laughs> God. Okay. So he's an expert on Iceland, but I've never been. I, th I think you're one of the first geographers I've met from the UK who has not been to Iceland. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I thought like if it, it comes, I thought it comes with the trade. If you're if you're a uh, geographer, you have to go to Iceland. <laughs> so it's, it's, um, it's a dreadful uh, admission, isn't it? It's absolutely. Yeah. So that that was so that was end of 2016 when I moved on to Iceland, and I I have to admit it was a bit of an adventure. So I, I had a couple of options and. Was different options in the UK, and then this offer from Iceland came. And I had been to Iceland before. Um, actually, my first or one of my first student field trips at university was to Iceland in 2001. So I knew what what it's like to be, in, well, at least as a kind of tourist or as a student <laughs> traveling around the country. And I always felt fascinated by Iceland because of that um, sort of well. I wouldn't say extreme living, but when you live in Iceland, you live sort of on the edge of where people would normally settle. It's like, it's not the first likely place where humans would settle down um, because it's a quite harsh environment. We're in the subarctic. I mean, it's not extreme as living in, let's say, I don't know, Greenland or in some deserts or somewhere else around the world. But I, I was intrigued by this sort of relationship that humans have with the natural environment. And what really started making me fascinated in geography is like trying to understand like how do humans and the environment interact and then so there was the offer from the University of Iceland on the table and the offer also came along with um, a very specific specialization in 
GIS and cartography and remote sensing. So the fields that I had been working on all my academic life. So um, I thought it's a no brainer. On the one hand, it's an adventure living in a country where I don't speak the local language, which probably is the most exotic country I've lived in so far, but also being able to do things that are my specialization with a little bit more academic freedom as well. So moving from sort of that senior research um, fellowship into a position where I pretty much can define the strands of research that I want to be working on. So that sort of extra bit of academic independence was also surely um, one of the elements or reasons why I moved to Iceland. But I I can't deny it was the, the thought of an adventure for a while that made me or that made us I mean, it was a joint decision with my partner and myself um, that made us to decide, yeah, let's try this for a couple of years. It probably won't be forever, but let's try this. And such an opportunity just comes once in a lifetime. And what would we think in, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years? Had we not gone there, we might regret it. That's what we thought. And therefore, we went for it. It's interesting because with a... Uh, a specialism like spatial data analysis, geo-visualization, that sort of thing. It means that when I when I was looking at your your recent papers, they looked it's really eclectic mix. So I, I picked a few out. I'm not going to read them all out because we'd be here for a length of time because you're really prolific. <laughs> but the first one I looked at was COVID nineteen spread across the world. Well, yeah, okay. I get that one. And then in focus, you've written three articles, well, more than three, but I picked three out. Trump tweets, power in the global politics of social media, how Joe Biden won the White House, nationality, citizenship and refugees, a global perspective. Then then I found spatial and temporal inequalities and mortality in the USA, fair enough. And then eye clinic attendance at the Olympic and Paralympic Games, Rio 2016 and its correlation to the World Health Organization indicators on eye health, and monitoring fish spawning sites and freshwater ecosystems using low-cost UAV data. It's, it's an amazing mixture. So what, <laughs> what underpins your choice? It really, and you, you can be excited by one thing, then another, then another. And I would imagine somebody going to Iceland would be a volcanologist, You've got lots of different things on the go. I guess um, trying to compete with a volcanologist um, just down the corridor here would be a step too far. I can't compete with these guys. I, I, I don't have the experience. No, I mean, you're saying something very right there, this sort of eclectic mix or this sort of, it's probably a little bit of an unusual academic profile, at least when it comes to a, a straightforward academic career. But I've, I've always followed a bit my my kind of, interests and this all I mean there is a core in all these papers and all the kind of works um, some of this more academic papers some of this more like outreach related works um, there is a core that sort of blends all of these things together and where it starts making sense and that's around um, geographic methods so um, the use of geographic information systems of spatial analysis of cartographic methods that's what I essentially get quite excited about so I'm it's probably a bit nerdy so I I like data and I like playing around with data and when the opportunity arises to do something exciting with an interesting data set I work on it 
but it's also like the, the different types of um, publications that you're citing now, there's sort of different strands of my work. So for example, the in-focus work, um, that's for a um, journal or magazine by the Political Studies Association in the UK. Um, I have become a regular contributor to that. So they, I think there's an issue now every quarter in the year. So the editor about 10 years ago approached me and asked like, can you maybe put a little one page piece together, let, just visualizing some politically relevant topic or theme. And that's something what I like doing, like getting a pitch for a theme and then looking for data and thinking like, how can we, how can we represent this? And then it went quite well that I got, um, got moved to a double page spread in the paper. And I've been doing that ever since. And basically finding themes for this is something that I discuss with the editor um, for each issue. And quite, these are all themes that circle, um, circle around politics. So that's like Trump tweets, for example, um, or COVID is a political issue as well. Quite often we cover like past elections, but we try to find an angle that is not like what you read in the morning in the paper, but I try to sort of find angles that are something more um, that contribute something extra to political sciences. So try to sort of find a wider angle of like, for example, what kind of political change are we seeing there? The Trump tweets I would like to pick out because that, that has an interesting story and that links to, to the world mapper work as well that we're probably still talking about a bit. Um, through world mapper, we got contacted by an US American consultancy firm who publish a kind of data visualization report every other year. And we had been doing some visuals for them in the past. And they were asking like, can you not do something with the tweets of Donald Trump? That was, when was that? Halfway through his term, I think. And then we started looking into it, um, into like how he's playing international politics with Twitter, basically using tweets to actually define the agenda and the media quickly picked on these tweets. So we started thinking like, can we maybe analyze his tweets for um, what countries he's tweeting about? And does this tell us something, maybe looking at how it changes over time, does it tell us something about the change in or the shift in American politics? Which it did, it was painful work. We went through thousands and thousands of his tweets and it sort of, um, we quickly worked out, it doesn't, you can't really use automated procedures to analyze this data. You can to a certain degree, but Donald Trump never refers to a country always just in his real country name, but you sort of have to read through and analyze the context of how countries are mentioned. So we worked on that map for this consultancy. And then of course, once um, this work had been done, it was obvious that I want to do I, I should be using this for something else as well. And that's how this publication, for example, came about. And we also used this map in the in a map exhibition at the um, at Oxford's Bodleian Library at the Western Library. There was a an exhibition, um, was it last you know, two years ago, started two years ago, in the middle of last year, called Talking Maps. And we used this as one of the sort of um, yeah, <laughs> let's say one of the telling maps that are really talking in itself. Like here's a map, not only talking, 
or talking a narrative, but here is a map about a person, a politician talking. So we used that map in part of the, we had a world mapper exhibit on in the exhibition at Digital One, and we used that map as the sort of signature map for the exhibition as well. So a lot of the themes that I work on, um, they, they circulate around my, first of all, my interest in geographic thinking. I'd like to to translate like more abstract numbers into something that we can relate to, into narratives and into, um, into meaningful narratives or something meaningful. And the major themes, and if you really focus on my academic work, and since I work at university, I also need to publish academic papers, which are sometimes maybe a little bit more boring. The example you mentioned um, on mortality in the USA, for example, um, a lot of what I've been publishing in the past few years um, addresses issues around inequality, social and spatial inequality, a lot about the UK, um, then often in relation to health or income inequality and so on. And this paper, for example, is about health inequalities um, in the United States, where we uh, made a study about uh, mortality rates that hasn't been done before. And again, we were sitting on this huge data set and that has been a huge team effort. So I can't claim of <laughs> having conducted the entire analysis myself, but these are the kind of also academic projects that I, I quite like to jump on the bandwagon if, I, if I'm approached and asked whether I would like to join the teams. And that's probably the, the clearest focus of my work has been inequality in the past 10 years. But then I've got all these little sort of side projects going along, which probably are a little bit more related to outreach work, to educational work that I think, or from what I get as feedback, are quite useful mostly also for, for like teachers and so on who, who use this material. And where I quite like to, to address and tackle like contemporary issues and sometimes really day-to-day -day issues like the pandemic, like, let's not say the word, but <laughs> Brexit, for example, and so on, to, to try to make sense of it, not, not always in a judgmental way, but to add different narratives and different perspectives to it that help us to, to understand what is going on, not, not to be judgmental on these things. And then the last thing you mentioned, monitoring fish spawning sites. I mean, um, my origins, like when I did my master's research in Germany um, at a research institute, that was in remote sensing. So I started off as a say proper, maybe physical geographer, if you can say it, but working already with geographic methods as, as the key theme. So analyzing remote sensing data and I sort of left this path a bit when I went to Sheffield because then that brought me into the human geography um, direction, into the whole inequality and world map and mapping stuff that I've been working on. But when I came to Iceland and with that came more freedom in my work again, and I'm in the faculty together with a biologist, um, I was approached by one of my colleagues in biology who has been studying um, salmonid fish in Lake Thingvatavatn in Iceland which have a very interesting story about evolution because there's different species um, developing um, each other uh, of, uh, apart or away from each other within the lake, but also because it's a freshwater ecosystem, they are cut off from like other freshwater systems. So what we need to understand how they are impacted by, for example, climate change and so on, um, we need methods to monitor this in, a, in, a, um, in the long term. And for that, actually, I could, dig my remote sensing skills out again and sort of refocus on, on what I've been doing there in the past and we developed a method um, where you can use like low cost drones that everybody 
um, has with them anyway and fly the drones there to identify fish spawning grounds. And if we can do that at a regular basis at regular, uh, relatively low costs, then we can actually start to see like what is changing over time. And we can understand, for example, the impact, the human impact of climate change, of um, leisure activities around the lake and so on, onto the species, which is crucial for basically maybe in the long term, the survival of these species. So um, I guess my, my main profile is really geographic methods. And that's what everything I do, you can always relate to, to this sort of core um, yeah, to this core skill and interest of mine. And then my broader interest is geography and understanding how humans and the their environments are interrelated, how they interact and so on. Very unobtrusively, you slipped the world mapper in there, which I think <laughs> is uh, one of the most fantastic resources for geography teachers. Just in case there isn't a geographer who doesn't know what world mapper is, just tell us a little bit about how it started and, and where it's at now. I just think it's a, an amazing resource. It brings us all to Sheffield. What a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> no, it actually, it goes, it goes even further back um, in its origins. It goes to Michigan where um, Michael Gessner and Mark Newman were working on, they are physicists, they were working on a new computer algorithm for the creation of cartograms. So cartograms are basically maps um, statistical maps or maps distorted by um, statistical values. So for example, a world map would be distorted by, um, let's say the number of people living in a country. So this is, these are cartograms and they developed a new, this is an old technique. So it, it was invented in the 19th century already. So when all the sort of big data visualization techniques were, uh, came about, but with computers, these types of maps are, of course, a lot easier to, to create because you don't have to sit down and draw these by hand. And Gaston Newman developed an algorithm that um, Danny at the time, I think he was reviewing the paper, if, if I'm not wrong. And he read this paper and thought like, this algorithm actually is a quite powerful like method and approach to creating cartograms. Danny had been working with cartograms before. He developed these circular cartograms, for example. And he saw the potential of this algorithm for actually popularizing cartograms. So that's when it all started. And Danny, um, I think, got in touch with Mark Newman. And they started thinking about this whole idea of creating an online atlas, mapping basically all of the statistics that at the time started to be released by United Nations, World, um, World Bank, World Health Organizations, and so on. So it sort of coincided, the publication of this algorithm coincided with international agencies starting to release data for free on the internet. So data availability was also a big issue or a big um, contributor to that. And um, that led to the launch of WordMapper in its original form in 2006, I think, as, a, as the original website. And then I joined in 2008 with my PhD studentship and I worked on these gridded cartograms as, as part of my PhD research. And that's, that got me, me involved in, in the WordMapper project. And sort of um, as time went by, I got more and more involved in it. And when my PhD ended, that was the last bit of funding that we had for WordMapper. So um, initially we all sort of moved on a little bit. I, I couldn't really keep up with um, really maintaining it or updating it. And then 
we, for example, developed London Mapper out of these ideas. So creating a cartogram platform for London that was funded by the Trust for London. But I never really wanted to completely abandon World Mapper. And when when I left Sheffield, um, I sort of started thinking like, is this the end of World Mapper? It was sitting on Sheffield servers, university servers. And I decided to take the domain with me. And then he said like, um, if we leave it in Sheffield, it's going to die one day just because nobody will maintain it. So I took it with me and for a while I didn't really like do any work with it. And then my partner Tina um, came into the game. She said like, why don't we um, try to get more funding for WorldMapper to, to update it, to make, give it a fresh style and to improve and advance it. And that's when we turned it into a, um, let's call it a sort of social enterprise. So, so we basically registered a limited company in, in the UK, which would allow us for commercial activities to charge people a license fee. So it's an educational resource free for all teachers and for everyone who doesn't want to make money with it to use. But taking it out of the university context allowed us to, for example, create commissioned works or to allow us to also give commercial licenses. And we did that for a few years just behind the scenes until we had enough money to redevelop the website. And then in, when was the anniversary conference in Sheffield? Was it 2018, the GA conference? Um, we're getting old, I guess. <laughs> we oh, just, yeah, um, I can't remember. Um, I think it was 2018 or, or 17 or something like it. Um, we used that as a, um, I discussed it with, um, with the GA as well. We used that as a point in time when we planned on, yeah, it was 2018, April 2018, <laughs> um, when we wanted to have a new platform ready, a much improved website that looks um, more like a proper website. The old website was done at university with limited resources and so on. And we wanted to um, start off, uh, yeah, it was the 125th, um, GA conference, so anniversary conference, and our idea was to restart World Mapper with a fresh design, new concept, and 125 new maps. So we had that date agreed, I think, about a year um, ahead of the conference, and then it was a year of hard work to get the platform ready, which we did with Human Studio in Sheffield, um, Design Studio, who made the programming um, from from the funds that we got together. So we could focus on the map making, on the contents and so on. And then in April 2018, we released a new website that you know now. And by now it has grown um, to over a thousand maps. And we try to sort of put more and more effort into like really keeping it up to date so that it doesn't become obsolete or out of date like the old website. And just looking at the the usage statistics and the feedback that we get from people, it's like, it's a very popular resource, not only amongst teachers, but it's like people like this kind of alternative display of data and people are requesting themes and topics. And um, probably in an ideal world, I could do this full time. I, I do have plenty of ideas what we could do. It's just, so it's mostly at the moment, Tina and myself working on this website and we have day-to-day -day jobs that, finance our food and everything else and we have to look after our family but we try to sort of keep it up and keep it going and maybe also turn it in, into something something bigger through corporations with like the GA and the RGS and so on to to really sort of improve on the capabilities that we have within the project so instead of having letting it slowly sort of become old and obsolete and let it die slowly we, we made a big push to sort of 
um, revive it and do our best to maintain it as much as, as we can these days. I'm really pleased you have. I, I looked for some of the other things on the, the, the university site that I've worked with Dan on. And as you say, they're gone. I couldn't find them. There was some interesting work where he'd used a different way of identifying the, um, the levels within the super output areas for the indices of multiple deprivation to try and take... That's the the output area classification he worked on, right? Yes. Uh, yes. Um, and I, I can't find that anymore, whereas World Mapper is fortunately, as you say, still high profile. We'll put a link into that, which um, yeah. I think it's important just in case, because new teachers coming through all the time, you forget that sometimes they haven't come across some of the things that you think are obvious. So it's a bit like we were saying earlier on about seeing patterns. And uh, it's... It shouldn't surprise me that sometimes geographers will say, well, I've never heard of world map, but of course you don't always pick up on everything. It depends on what's come your way. But I don't know how you keep this up because you're not only really doing that, you've got a blog as well with, uh, with another mix that's, uh, that's, that's again, quite eclectic. So that must keep you really busy. It's like, I mean, you would probably have seen, especially with, um, the launch of World Mapper in the relaunch of World Mapper in 2018, the activity on the blog went further <laughs> down. So, um, like trying to maintain many different things at the same time is probably very difficult. I, I started doing this in um, in 2009 when I saw when I started like after, the year after I started my PhD, I saw other PhD students doing blogs, and that also got me on Twitter, for example. I just saw like what are other people doing. And I thought, like, maybe it's a nice way to display your work, like putting papers out and so on. And then I started thinking, like, I'm producing so many maps that I never use for anything at all. I'm just, especially during my PhD, I was experimenting a lot. I've got literally thousands of maps sitting on my computer that I've never seen the light of day. But I started actually using the blog for putting out material or works that don't really fit into publications or would need to be, yeah improved a lot or they would need to be put a lot more work into um into them to to put them turn them into academic publications um so i just use it as an outlet for the kind of visualization stuff that i've been working with so for example when i realized like in the uk election cartograms are quite popular i started wondering like why is that not the case in germany so i started creating cartograms of german elections which to my knowledge nobody had done before so i keep doing it so that people start seeing like what else you can do with um, with geographic visualization. So it's kind of, it's a mix of like displaying bits of my academic work, a little bit of my outreach work, but then it's also a bit like a, a garbage dump or something of, of some of the maps where I think like it would be sad to let these just go away. Or um, like recently what I, the only entry I, I put in this year so far is the, um, the volcano map I did from Iceland. But I just thought like, we've got this volcano and all my colleagues from earth science get excited about it, but they're far too busy to been analyzing the, the, the magma that is coming out and all these kind of processes. There's no really good map about the area that helps people to understand, like, where is it situated? What, what is the progress of the, of the lava flows and so on? So I just started putting, making my own map, but then in order for it to be seen, you need to put it somewhere. And we live in an age where the internet is just ubiquitous for everyone. 
and where like for example for the volcano there was a huge interest not only from Iceland but also from abroad where people just appreciate like any kind of information they can get so I just put it out there because I thought like there's no good map then I just have to make it myself which is not saying that um, this is a particularly good map but it's probably a better map than than what um, what has been put out so far where people just draw onto Google Maps <laughs> and these kind of things. So it's like, yeah, that's my blog. That's probably at the moment um, a little bit abandoned um, because I just can't keep that. Like even a blog entry is work. So you have to put a bit of effort in. It's still um, interesting I though. I, I think it's interesting for A-level students to see what's going on. If all they ever do is, is consume their material from a teacher or from textbooks or from from sites that are, are finished sites. Here is your information. Thank you very much. It's different from seeing a site where you're exploring and you're putting out ideas and and sort of developing knowledge as you go along. I think it's also for like for academic work, like yes, we do publish papers, but this is not necessarily, on the one hand, it's not always accessible for everyone. Some papers are just behind really expensive paywalls, but it's also um, something that like the general public doesn't necessarily always look in academic journals and the, the language in academic publications might sometimes also be a bit awkward or a bit like difficult or yeah, whatever way you want to call it. So I think a blog is also a good way of putting bits and pieces of your work out that you think are most interesting. So in my case, very often I, I take um, the visuals out of some publications and put them out with a little bit of context so that um, those who are interested in the topic um, get an overview of what the actual academic work is related to. So I think like in terms of like justifying most of our work is financed by the general public, we're working at public universities in most cases, then we should also be prepared and willing to give something back to the public and not just sort of stay in our little um, academic bubble that just publishes in academic outlets and never talks to, to the general public. Because in the end, we need to justify our work in the society that we are acting in and that sort of sustains our work. Is that where the GeoViz Lab work comes in then? GeoViz Lab Iceland and Euratus project, is that more communicating with a wider audience? It's um, so I just started putting that website out um, not that long ago. The thinking behind this website was to make the work that I'm doing and that we here in, in the geography department in the Faculty of Life and Environmental Sciences um, have been working towards with my appointment since late 2016 that we sort of increase our specialization in geovisualization to make it more visible. And there's no real space or there has been no real space on the university website that sort of makes people aware that we have this here now. So I started thinking I should probably, I mean, it's it's very common, for example, in, in biology and so on to have lab websites or the whatever lab, like my colleague in, in working with a the fish, they have a, an, a bioecology lab, for example. And to, to sort of showcase the specialization that we started building up here in, in geography at the University of Iceland to showcase or to, to find a platform 
where I can showcase the work, for example, of my students, which I plan on putting like bachelor and master thesis on this website. Also to make people visible that ha they've been working like when students or, or researchers have been working in, in my team that um, they are visible somewhere as being part of this. I mean, we have our staff websites at the university, but you don't always necessarily relate to like, where do people belong to? What kind of... Um, what kind of work do they do? And that's when I started thinking like, maybe we need a little website that, that starts showcasing this work and the outputs. And I thought my personal blog as an academic is probably not fit for purpose for that because that's like my personal identity versus the GeoVis lab is something that um, I do as part of being here at the University of Iceland. And if I was to leave, maybe somebody else takes over um, this specialization here at the university so it, it should be attributed more to the university than to myself and as, a, as an academic you always juggle these two two sides on the one hand you have to make your own profile visible because you you're mobile you keep moving on and you want to sort of display who you are and what you do what your specialization is or your skills are what makes you stand out but on the other hand um, I'm also employed by the University of Iceland so I also should not showcase myself as, as who I am, but also show myself in the context of what I try to build up here at the university. And that's what I've been trying. Um, basically, the GeoVis lab is like my research group and the people I work with here at the university and the people I collaborate with. And the plan is for this website to sort of put this work into context, to show what is our teaching offer in geospatial methods, um, opportunities for master thesis and these kind of things. Um, that we don't really have, a, have a, an appropriate space for here at the University of Iceland. So we'll see where that goes. Will you extend that so that there's something for, for A-level students? This is where you could go. This is an aspect that you could look at. Because I, I, I just wonder whether somebody doing A-level geography who might, they'll have come across world mapper, but whether they consider that as being, hey, just a minute, there's a, there's a pathway into not just academic work, because this stuff is being used commercially, but it's getting that information over to A-level students. I think a lot, I mean, that moves us a little bit away, again, from this sort of idea of, of um, showcasing what I do here as, as part of the GeoVis lab. But what I'm trying to really do is by engaging with something like the GA, the RGS, by engaging with schools. I've got many friends at, at schools in England, for example, where, I'm, I really like actually being engaged in activities because I think it just helps students seeing the value of geography. It's something that is really difficult. For example, I, started, I only started appreciating in Iceland where geography doesn't really have the same standing as it has in the UK. I do know that neither in the UK nor in Germany, geography is in, in the best possible condition. Geography always has to fight also partly for its survival, for example, in the curriculum. But in Iceland, it just doesn't exist. Like at it, schools, it's not really being taught. So we really have to fight hard for student numbers, like to get students um, wanting to study geography because people can't relate to geography. The, the Icelandic word for geography, they only associate like talking about capitals and rivers. I mean, our traditional view of geography, like what do we learn? But what else does geography have to offer? Students have never encountered that here at school. So we started... And mostly my Icelandic colleagues, because I don't speak Icelandic, but we started 
actively campaigning it, like going out to schools and say like, look, geography is more than just learning the capitals of the world. Geography can do all these kind of amazing things. You can, you can learn about mapping and GIS, you can learn about soils and, and all these kind of things where students would rather opt for studying geology because they think like, if I want to learn about volcanoes, I study geology. They don't realize that if you study geography, you actually learn about volcanoes and how they relate to, for example, human livelihoods and how they relate to hazards and vulnerability and all these aspects. So this is hard work in Iceland where I would just um, say we should in the UK, for example, be very happy about geography actually still having a, a certain branding and, and standing in society probably also not least um, due to activities um, of organizations like the GA and the RGS and so on, but also how its position is in the, in the curriculum. And even if we like to moan about it, it be becoming more and more ir irrelevant and having to fighting, fight for it, there's always places where, it, where it's worse. <laughs> and I think the value of geography is, is um, we don't need to discuss in this podcast <laughs> about this, yeah. but... Um, we have to keep talking about it. And that's one of the important aspects, communication. And that's a task and a challenge for academics, for teachers, for everybody who declares and defines themselves as being a geographer. Well, you do have a very inspiring, I think it's only four minutes, isn't it? The video on the blog. That, oh, yeah. It's a lovely piece. It's a, um, that was at a conference of, um, it's an organization called the, um, uh, global Young Academy, so like young scientists, early career scientists, and I was a member. You're you can be an elected member for five years, and in my my final year, I went to the um, conference, and there was a platform called Lightning Talks where you're supposed to show, or we we can showcase your work, but you only have four minutes to do so. It's a bit of a challenge, so I tried to sort of sum up what I had been doing mostly over the past 10 years, especially building up on my PhD work. And um, yeah, I say it's a challenge because I probably always talk more than I should be talking. And therefore, like squeezing that into four minutes and being cut off after four minutes um, really requires a bit of discipline from you, especially like I, I can't really work with notes. Like even if I write down my notes for, for lectures and stuff, like I immediately straddle away and, and move on to something else and talking about something else. But when you have the clock ticking, it makes you focus. So I hope I managed to, to do that in this, in this little video. No, I thought, I thought it was really good. I was really interested in, in watching that. I, I suppose, given you're talking about we ought to be finishing in four minutes, perhaps we're at about an end as well. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that I should have done? Is there anything that you would like to add? I guess we could go on and on for hours and talking about all sorts of things. We haven't really talked about the volcano. I squeezed, I sneaked it in every once in a while, but no, I'm, I'm fairly happy with, <laughs> with the topics that you covered and you did your research really well. You stalked me well online, I guess. <laughs> and I think we covered some interesting topics, um, however much you can squeeze into the time that we have. Well, it was, it was absolutely really nice. fascinating for me, I have to say, because it took me back to when you were at Sheffield University. And that was a really, I really did find that uh, it changed my, it changed my thinking about that sort of geography, uh, fundamentally, uh, about looking at spatial inequalities. Uh, it was sort of, it was a fundamental change and I, and, and a huge impact. 
And I'm very grateful for what you did then. And World Mapper, I think, is a, is a wonderful site. It's a great site for teaching. I stopped, which was unfortunate. I was at GA. So everything that I did with World Mapper was working with teachers rather than working with my own students. But it's just fantastic work. Um, I'm really I, I should probably also on. say, like we, we are very keen on like really talking to teachers and hearing about ideas, what we can do. I mean, I'm, I'm a university teacher, but I'm not a trained teacher. So um, building up teaching resources and hearing what teachers need is really something that we now from speaking from with my world mapper hat on really need to hear from teachers. And we are very keen on engaging with teachers and keep engaging with teachers because that really helps us to turn it into a resource that is really useful. Like we don't do it just for the sake of doing it, but we try to sort of listen and um, take the skills on board that we don't have um, and that teachers have and know about from, from their everyday work. And I should probably also, like, as you were just saying about your, um, your work in Sheffield, I pro should probably also say that probably my time in Sheffield really also was probably one of the most fundamental for my academic or my career as a geographer it, it really made me the geographer who I am so all the inspiring inputs that I got at the University of Sheffield from from um, Danny and and all the colleagues that were there really made or defined the work that I'm doing today I was on a completely different tra trajectory before and that really changed course for me and I think um, this just keeps um, yeah keeps staining my work even if I move back into looking at fish occasionally now it's still the the key um my key interest and my key um inspiration that i take from that time and from the years that i was i think it was five years that i was um in in sheffield it is a lovely place and it's it's a lovely university and uh, and as i say i think the work that you've done is fantastic that was wonderful thank you ben i really enjoyed our our chat today that's been just perfect way to spend an hour thank you very much Thank you very much and goodbye.